Invicta! Oh, no, not really. Invicta, as would be the correct classical pronunciation. This monoverbal motto glows majestically on the scroll beneath the coat of arms of Kent County Council, and it gave its name to such renowned Kentish institutions as Invicta Grammar School or Invicta FM. <laughs> it is the past participle of the verb winkere, prefixed in the negative, negative and inflected in the singular feminine nominative. It means unconquered, and its referent is Cantia, the county of Kent itself. Its referent is certainly not the horse, which is a stallion, though mercifully the proof of that is left to our imaginations. Despite their heraldic marriage, the motto and the symbol have completely distinct histories. As mentioned, I expounded the genesis of the white horse in a previous monologue. I will touch upon it this afternoon only to the extent that is necessary to set the motto in their mutual context. This afternoon, I intend to concentrate upon why Kent is considered to be unconquered and how it acquired this boastful slogan. We begin, as so many misled schoolchildren believe the history of England to begin, in 1066. In that year, or so the Kentish chronicler Thomas Sprott recounts, Duke William, emphasis on Duke William, landed at Pevensey, and once he had waged battle with Harold and killed him, and taken the city of London into his control, the aforesaid William directed his journey towards the fortress of Dover, so that he might subject it and the other parts of its county to his power. Having learnt this, Archbishop Stigand and Abbot Ethelzia, and the great men of all Kent, realised that the whole kingdom was placed in an evil position, and that, whereas before the aforesaid William's arrival no one in England was a slave, now everyone, both nobles and commoners alike, was brought down to the perpetual slavery of the Normans, weaving from the dangers of their neighbours the stuff of salvation for themselves and their country, they gathered all the people of the whole of Kent together at Canterbury and explained to them the imminent danger, the misery of their neighbours, the arrogance of the Normans and the wretchedness of a condition of slavery. And the whole people, choosing to end their unhappy life rather than be brought under servitude's insufferable yoke, decided with common consent to meet Duke William and strive with him for the laws of their fathers. Indeed, the aforesaid archbishop and abbot, choosing to die in battle sooner than see the evils of their nation, and being enlivened by the example of the holy Maccabees, became the leaders of the army. And on the appointed day, the whole people gathered at Swanscombe, lurking in the darkness of the woods, to lie in wait for the aforesaid duke's arrival. And since abundant caution does no harm, this was set forth amongst them, that each one, both horsemen and foot soldiers, should carry all the branches as a safeguard. So that as the Duke approached and all the invaders were preoccupied, no escape should be open to him on any side. The Duke, therefore, coming on the next day into the countryside near, near the aforesaid place, marvelled, not without a troubled mind, that all the land situated around him was, as it were, a moving forest, 
and was coming towards him at a steady pace. But when the leaders of the Kentish people saw that Duke William was surrounded in their midst, the trumpet gave the signal. The standards were raised up high, and they threw their branches away, showing with bows stretched, swords spread, spears and other kinds of weapons brandished, that they were ready for battle. The Duke, however, and they who were with him stood there dumbstruck. No wonder. And he who believed that he held the whole of England by his grasp was now seriously doubtful of his own life. The Archbishop and Abbot named above sent messengers to Duke William on the part of the people of Kent, bearing him a message in these words. Lord Duke, behold, the people of Kent meet you to receive you as their liege lord, asking those things which pertain to peace, but under this condition, that the whole people of Kent may always rejoice in their wanted freedom and use the laws and customs of their fathers. Otherwise, they declare that they are even now prepared for war with you and yours, wishing to fall here rather than to depart in any way from the laws and customs of their fathers or to submit themselves to unendured slavery. The Duke, however, seeing that he was put in a fix and having discussed it with his men, wisely realising that if he suffered a repulse or anything troublesome from that people who are the key of England, the whole business that he had carried out earlier would be undone and all his hope and safety turned to danger, conceded that which the people of Kent sought. Not so much freely as sensibly. So, once the treaty had been confirmed and hostages given on either side, the happy Kentishmen led the happy Normans to Rochester, and they gave the county of Kent with the noble fortress of Dover into the Duke's own control. And thus, the ancient freedom and the laws and customs of the fatherland, which before the coming of Duke William obtained equally throughout the whole of England, remain inviolably up to these times in Kent alone. And this by the work of Archbishop Stigand and Abbot Ethelsea. <laughs> What was all that about? <laughs> well, first of all, I should explain who Thomas Sprott was and the these times to which he refers. This is rendered a little difficult by the fact that almost nothing is known about him. We do know that he was a monk of St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury and that he lived at some time in the 13th century. We know this because he wrote a history of his monastery which survives in two manuscripts neither of which is the original, and they both end their narrative at different points, so that we can't be sure whether Sprott, whether the, these times in which Sprott was writing were as early as the 1220s or as late as the 1270s. The abbot Ethelsia, whom Sprott makes in a deliberately laboured point, the saviour, jointly with Archbishop Stigand of Kentish Liberty, was abbot of Sprott's own House of St Augustine's, so the story is steeped in local pride at an English, Kentish, and Cantuarian level. Sprott was not the only person in the 13th century commenting on Kent's bespoke arrangement with William the Bastard. In 1249, a protest was lodged in court against the imposition in Kent of presentment of Englishry. That is to say, the principle that unless a murder victim could be proven to be English, rather than French, a communal fine would be levied. 
The County of Kent, says the court record, says that in that county it ought of right to be free of such an imposition, for it says that the county is the residue of England, that it was never conquered, but rendered itself to the conqueror's rule by a pact, having saved to itself all its liberties and free customs originally had and used. Similar claims were made in subsequent cases, culminating in a judicial array at Canterbury over Easter 1293, when the set of Kentish customs was confirmed and then codified in a document called simply the Consuetudines Canciae, the Customs of Kent. There are at least nine surviving manuscripts of the <coughs> manuscripts of Consuetudines, one of which is kept in here. There are 24 clauses for the Consuetudines, so I can only give a few random examples. The best known custom, clause 10 in the Consuetudines, is the principle that, whereas under common law, land passed to a man's oldest son, under Kentish custom, his land had to be divided equally amongst all of his sons. Sons? As had been the custom in England before the Norman Conquest. Clause 14 treats 15 years as the age at which an orphaned heir ceases to be a ward and may enter upon his land. Pre-conquest law had treated various ages as the age of majority for various purposes, but King Ethelstan had set 15 as the youngest age at which a man might be hanged for his first offence. Rather grimly, this didn't stick. Clauses 19 to 21 describe a procedure known as gavelate, which regulated how a lord might distrain his tenant's property for rent that had fallen into arrears. One of Canute's law codes describes a very similar procedure and treats it as general throughout England. I could go on, but I think the point is made. It is a fact that by the 13th century, Kent enjoyed its own peculiar common law, which seems to have consisted of laws retained from before the Norman Conquest. The explanation for this, doing the rounds in the 13th century, was that Kent made a special arrangement with William I, but it was a live and somewhat controversial topic at the time Sprott was writing, a context that should set alarm bells ringing. Those of us who waste our days on history websites or in academic articles have recently noticed a glut of papers, conferences, and programs on the history of the Kievan Rus, the medieval Ukraine, and Eastern Europe more generally. Formerly rather a niche subject in this country, but one on which it has suddenly become a matter of international importance to be well informed. Through his decisions about what to report and how to report it, the historian reveals as much about the concerns and values of his own time as about the time about which he purports to be writing. In providing an explanation for how Kent achieved its unique legal privileges, Thomas Sprott betrays the contemporary concern that those privileges might be threatened with abolition by sceptical judges, so needed an impeccable justification. This helps to explain why Sprott's history, written about 200 years after the alleged event, is the earliest and indeed the only source for the ambush of William at Swanscombe. Unfortunately for the story's credibility, the Norman Conquest is one of the best documented events of the 11th century, of which narrative accounts were being composed within a few years of its occurrence. The earliest is a poem by Guy, Bishop of Amiens, written in 1070. 
This is followed by the history of the Dukes of the Normans by William of Juliège, completed in the same year. William I's own chaplain, William of Poitiers, where there are a lot of Williams in this. William of Poitiers wrote a biography of his master in the early 1070s, and this was used as a source by the Anglo-Norman monk Orderic Vitalis, who composed his own ecclesiastical history in 1141, though he'd been working on it for the better part of 30 years. There is also the account in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written probably during the reign of William I's son. Though these sources do contradict one another in detail, they tell broadly the same story. After Harold's death in the Battle of Hastings on the 14th of October 1066, William settled down at his camp and waited for the English nobility to come to him and submit. After all, what choice did they have? I mean, there was no one else who would be King of England now, was there? Yes, there was. In the aftermath of the battle, the surviving English nobles, including Archbishop Stigand, gathered in London, where they proclaimed as king Edward of the Confessor's 15-year-old great-nephew, Edgar the Atheling. This is a point that is worth stressing. Though he was not crowned, is always missed out of the list of our kings and queens, and reigned for barely two months, Edgar was constituted king according to the law as it was at the time. He is even known to have performed one official act, confirming the election of a new abbot of Peterborough. After Edward the Confessor came Harold II, and after Harold II came not William I, but Edgar II. William would have to wait his turn. But William was tired of waiting. After two weeks encamped at Senlac, it dawned on him that the English might not have realised how defeated they were. So the bastard marched eastward through Kent to secure the Channel ports. He made a quick stop in Rummy Marsh, where some Normans who had landed there by mistake had been killed by the locals, on whom William now, now visited exemplary revenge. He then proceeded to Dover, which he captured without a fight. As William of Poitiers puts it, the men of Kent, of their own accord, hastened to meet him not far from Dover. They swore fealty and gave hostages. Even the mighty metropolitan city shook with terror, and for fear of total ruin if it resisted further, hastened to secure its status by submission. An exchange of messengers with Winchester enabled William to capture that city without even visiting it. After a brief bout of camp sickness, William made an initial attack on London but the city refused to yield. So he waged a scorched earth campaign, moving in an arc through Hampshire, Surrey, Berkshire, Middlesex, and Hertfordshire. Archbishop Stigand, far from being the patriotic hero of Thomas Sprott's account, was in reality the first of King Edgar's party to defect, submitting to the bastard at Wallingford in Berkshire. William then progressed to Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire, where Edgar and his remaining supporters finally surrendered to him. The bastard was crowned at Westminster by Ealdred, Archbishop of York, on Christmas Day. Early in the new year, rather than being ambushed at Swanscombe, William in fact went on a victory tour of Normandy, dragging behind him a procession of distinguished hostages, headed by the deposed King Edgar, but also including Archbishop Stigand and Ethelloth, Sheriff of Kent. William's half-brother Otto, Bishop of Bayeux, was left behind as Earl of Kent. 
Otto became notorious for his castles, constructed first at Dover, Canterbury and Rochester, but over the following years at Tong, Stockbury, Thurnham, Leeds, Southern Valence, Allington, Folkestone, Chillum, Saltwood and Ainsford. These castles were built, it must be remembered, by forced labour, not as location filming for period drama or for tourist traps for Americans to coo over, but as weapons, military bases from which an occupying foreign power could control a resistant native population. At some point after Easter 1067, while Oddo was out of the county, a conspiracy was formed to capture Dover Castle. Eustace, Count of Boulogne, was invited to head the operation in what seems to have been an attempt to set him up as an alternative earl, or perhaps even king. For William of Poitiers and Orderic Vitalis, to whom we owe our information on this plot, stressed that it was the men of Kent who were principally responsible for forming the conspiracy and for involving Eustace, reasoning that if they must have a foreign lord, then they would at least have one of their own choosing. Unfortunately, the castle was better defended than expected, and Eustace withdrew after a siege of barely two days. This was only one, and probably the smallest, of several revolts against William in the early years of his usurpation, which favoured as alternative kings variously the sons of Harold, the inexplicably not-murdered Edgar, and even the king of Denmark, Swain Estridsson. By 1071, the last pockets of resistance had been crushed, and those who could fled abroad. Some followed Edgar the Atheling to exile in Scotland. Some settled in Denmark at the court of Swain Estridsson, while others found a more exotic refuge in Greece, where they joined the notorious Varangian guard of the Eastern Roman Emperor. One such recruit was a nobleman who had been educated in Canterbury. He founded a church in Constantinople, the ruins of which still exist, dedicated to St Augustine, which became the chapel of the English Varangians. All of this is impossible to reconcile with Sprott's story of the ambush at Swanscombe. Kent was as conquered as any other part of England, and it felt the Norman yoke as keenly as anywhere else. This does not alter the fact that by the 13th century, Kent enjoyed a unique common law that bore a greater resemblance to pre-Norman custom than obtained elsewhere in England, but it does mean that the explanation for that is more complicated than Sprott's half-warmer. The current consensus among historians is that the differences between pre-conquest and post-conquest English law were the result not of sweeping changes executed by William I, but accumulated gradually through piecemeal reforms under his successors. Why these changes failed to gain traction in Kent, so that by the 13th century, the county had emerged as the last island of English law amidst a sea of what was presumed to be Norman custom, remains something of a mystery. So I am relieved to say that it is not what I shall spend the remainder of this afternoon talking about. Instead, I shall focus on two subjects, how the legend was constructed and how it has influenced Kentish iconography, in particular, the development of the motto. The basic principle of the legend, namely that William promised the men of Kent that they would be allowed to continue under the laws already obtaining, is not as incredible as it may seem. For one thing, it was routine procedure for usurpers to promise their reluctant subjects not to change anything. 
Canute made a very similar promise in the first Britenniumot of his reign in 1018. And William of Normandy based his claim to the English throne on a supposed nomination by Edward the Confessor himself. This was a barefaced lie, but it was one to which William would cling to his dying day. For all the deprivations of land and life that he inflicted on his unhappy subjects, the Norman bastard always insisted that he was Edward's legitimate heir. In that spirit, he made a point of using the traditional order of ceremony for his coronation, at which he swore that, if the English were loyal to him, he would hold the nation as best as any kings before him. Shortly after this, William granted a charter to the citizens of London, which survives in its original copy, confirming that yet beon yalra vara lacha weirada the yut waran on edwaratas dea kungas, and that altschuld beo his father urfnumer. I'm sure you don't need me to translate that. <laughs> the fact that it was written in Old English rather than in Latin on its own is significant, and it means, for those of you who do need it, is that that they should all still be worthy of the laws that yet were in King Edward's day, and that every child should be his father's heir. That every child should be his father's heir. This looks strikingly like the promise allegedly made to the men of Kent. The law as it was in Edward the Confessor's day would subsequently become the cliched archetype of the ideal good law. King Henry I issued a coronation charter under which he promised, among other things, not to impose taxes that had not been levied in King Edward's time, to punish murderers according to the law of King Edward, and generally to restore King Edward's law. The coronation charter of King Stephen also promised to maintain all the good laws and good customs that they had in King Edward's time. As late as 1213 at Winchester, Bad King John swore that he would recall the laws of his ancestors, especially the laws of King Edward. From 1308, upholding the law of the by now Saint Edward was included as a promise in the coronation oath of English monarchs. In sum, the basic claim of the Swanscombe legend, namely that Duke William promised the men of Kent that they might continue to, the li to live under the laws of King Edward if they acknowledged him as Edward's successor, would have been perfectly consistent with his general policy. Indeed, those among you who have been paying close attention will remember that I've already mentioned the fact that the men of Kent submitted to William outside Dover before he marched on London, separately from the rest of the English political nation. If William did make some empty promise to them to maintain Edward's laws, then he would have acted no differently from how he would treat London or treat England generally. Thomas Sprott has inverted the real nature of the confrontation, turning it from a surrender with conditions to an ambush with negotiated outcome, and he has placed it after the capture of London, when in fact it occurred before. But any memory of the event would have been 200 years old, give or take a few decades, by the time Sprott was writing, and I think we can allow him some local pride. Local pride also explains why his own house's abbot, Ethelsia, is made joint hero of the tale with Archbishop Stigand. The Archbishop has probably been brought into the story for two reasons. First, he was a natural leading figurehead for Kent. Secondly, Stigand and Ethelsia were close colleagues and perhaps even friends in real life. Ethelsia entered religion at Winchester while Stigand was bishop there. 
After Stigand was translated to Canterbury, it was he who nominated Evelsier for the vacant abbacy of St Augustine's. And once his friend was safely ensconced therein, he lavishly endowed the house. As long as first Earl, then King Harold, was in the ascendant, it was advantageous for Ethelsier to be so closely associated with Harold's former chaplain. But the usurpation of William reversed this. Both Stigand and Ethelsier, along with a number of other bishops, the Legatine Council in 1070. Ethelsier subsequently joined the English refugees in Denmark with King Swain. According to Thomas Sprott, Ethelsier never returned from his exile and he cited Ethelsia's role in William's humiliation at Swanscombe as the reason for the king's displeasure with the abbot, thereby furnishing us with the reason why it was at St Augustine's Abbey in particular, rather than anywhere else in Kent, that this story developed. In folklore, it is always the ending to a story that, is, that comes first, and then a beginning is invented to fit. In this case, Ethelsia's exile. One wonders what other variations on the story of William's deal with the men of Kent might have circulated in other parts of the county, where there was no need to involve Ethelsia, and some other figure might have been given the leading role. One element of the legend that I have struggled to explain is why it is set in Swanscombe of all places. The real encounter between William and the men of Kent occurred outside Dover, and St Augustine's Abbey itself had no known association with Swanscombe to explain why it had an interest in locating the story there. I must confess that this mystery has defeated me, so I can only offer a very tentative provisional explanation. The name Swanscombe derives from Swain's Camp, meaning Swineherd's Field. But the Elizabethan antiquary William Lambard suggested that it derived from Swain's Camp, that is, the camp of Swain the Dane, i.e. Swain Forkbeard, that encamped at Greenhive, hard by. If this piece of folk etymology were of long standing, and not just Lambard's own invention, then it might have inspired an association of ideas with Ethelsia, who fled to the court of a different Swain the Dane. Or it might have created the idea that Swain's camp was an appropriate place to encounter an invader. This is not a very satisfying explanation, but it might be given just a little substance by Swanscombe's geography. In the legend, William is ambushed while marching from London to Dover. This would have been along what is now the A2, which does indeed run through the parish of Swanscombe, though a little south of the village itself, in an area that as late as Edward Hasted's time was thickly wooded and reputed for ancient earthworks. Perhaps Swanscombe was chosen for no better reason than the fact that it was a good topographical fit. Those woods bring us on to the legend's most striking detail. Before advancing on the Normans, each man of Kent hews him down a bow and bears it before him. Audiences today, even Kentish ones, are most familiar with this motif from Shakespeare's play of Macbeth, but it was not the Bard's invention. The use by Malcolm's troops of Burnham Wood as camouflage at the approach to Dunsinan, which is its correct name, Shakespeare invented the pronunciation Dunsinane to fit his metre, first appeared in Andrew of Wintoun's original Chronicle of Scotland, composed around 1420. One would like to think that the Scot ripped off Sprott, but in fact the moving wood motif is not original to the Swanscombe legend either. It is an itinerant plot device found in folktales from countries as varied as Greece, Serbia, Persia, Holstein, Hesse, Denmark, France and the Yemen. 
The likeliest of these comparable tales to have influenced the Swanscombe legend is an episode in the Passio Agalolfi. Saint Agalolfus was a bishop of Cologne, murdered in 750, possibly for opposing the accession of Charles Martel as king of the Franks. His hagiography, which was probably written between 1060 and 1062, contains an episode in which Charles Martel, having heard of the bishop's death, went to pay his respects at his grave in Malmedy in modern Belgium. Out of the church, he was met by a wise old woman. Old women in folktales usually are wise. Who advised him to ambush his enemies by having his men cut down flowering branches from the trees of the nearby forest. The terrifying apparition of the moving forest weakened the enemy's resolve. I cannot prove that Thomas Sprott had read the Passio Agalolfi, but this iteration of the moving wood motif seems to bear the most parallels with the Swanscombe legend, and so is the likeliest to have provided the idea. Despite its appeal to local pride and its usefulness in providing an explanation for the peculiarity of Kentish customary law, there is no evidence that the Swanscombe legend was known outside St. Augustine's Abbey in the Middle Ages. Only one other medieval historian, William Thorne, repeated it, and he too was a monk of St. Augustine's Abbey, and he just repeated Sprott's account verbatim. The first man who is known to have disseminated the legend beyond the cloisters was our good friend William Lambard, who published two accounts of it, based on Sprott, but using his own words, in 1568 and 1576. This was republished or repeated by several other late 16th and early 17th century writers. This was the period in which the scientific study of English local history really began. Among this illustrious generation was Richard Verstigen, whose Restitution of Decayed Intelligence in Antiquities, published in 1605 and available from all good bookshops, was the first to depict Hengiston Horsa arriving at Ebbsfleet under the banner of a prancing horse. As well as new works on historiography, the new mood for antiquarian inquiry also inspired a new genre of patriotic poetry, of which an excellent example is The Battale of Agincourt, a ballad published in 1627 by Michael Drayton. In one completely fictitious scene, Drayton describes the county militia of Henry V's army marching aboard ship for the crossing to France, each preceded by a lovingly described banner. First, in the Kentish streamer, was a wood, out of whose top an arm that held a sword as their right emblem. And to make it good, they above other only had a word, which was unconquered, as that freest had stood. Though in the vernacular, rather than in the Latin in which it is habitually rendered nowadays, this is the earliest appearance of the one-word war cry, Invicta that would subsequently become as integral a part of Kent's iconography as Verstigen's white horse. It is arguably much more appropriate to associate the motto with the visualisation of the Swanscombe legend to which it refers than with the unrelated and chronologically discordant tradition of Hengist's stallion. But over the course of the 18th century, it would be the white horse that would increasingly come to be used as the symbol of Kent. It appears on newspaper mastheads, as part of the uniform of the real county militia and on tradesmen's tokens, such as this example from 1794. But even at this late stage, the White Horse's position as the symbol of Kent was not quite unchallenged. 
1785, the Society of Royal Kentish Bowmen was formed. The Society took inspiration for its iconography from Drayton's Battle of Agincourt. Their seal, and I'm afraid I haven't been able to find good enough an image of this, their seal depicted a group of oak trees with an arm in armour emerging from the top, holding, not a sword, but an arrow with the motto Invicta written above it. On their rule book, published in 1789, they depicted on the cover a grove of oak trees, this time without the Kentish Yeoman army hiding behind it, and the motto Invicta written beneath it. These are the earliest examples known to me of the motto appearing in Latin rather than in the English in which Drayton wrote it. The Society's wealthy patrons even presented to it two standards. There are, as far as I'm aware, no surviving examples of these standards or any pictures of them, so we have to rely on what I warn you is a rather unintelligible description. They're described as all in a canton, the arms of Kent, the field charged with three piles of arrows, crest, an arm arising from a wood, invicta, motto, leges teniamus abitas. I think that means yellow flag with, in a red box in the corner, the white horse, an arrow, and then two other arrows forming a third arrow, wood, sword, invicta at the top, and legis teniamus amitas, let us hold to the laws of our fathers underneath, I think. As if the seal standards and garish uniform designed by the society's president, who was inevitably the prince regent, were not ostentatious enough, the society even treated itself to two poets laureate. And by two I mean they were not successive, they were simultaneous. Two joint poets laureate, the Reverend James Dodd and Thomas Nichols, whose job was to write songs that would be sung at the Bowman's meetings. These songs usually took their inspiration from the Swanscombe legend, usually with Bowman taking the part of Yeoman. One excellent example, written by Thomas Nichols, repeats the word unconquered at the end of each verse, of which this is the last. Now ere since that great day, Kent's first in the array, when her banner she foremost doth raise, which in battle saws fear, in front doth appear, and unconquered her motto displays. Take that, Napoleon. This seems to allude to a banner associated with the county that had unconquered, or perhaps Invicta, written on it. I assume this is a reference to the standard of the society, but there is another possibility. The Royal Kentish Bowmen were not the only people taking inspiration from the Swanscombe legend. Here is another tradesman's token, payable at Deptford in 1795, depicting a knight on horseback being encountered by foot soldiers wielding, wielding swords, arrows, and branches of oak. With the date 1067 underneath, and the motto, Kentish liberty preserved by virtue and courage around the rim. Making allowances for the hopelessly anachronistic armour, this is obviously a depiction of the encounter at Swanscombe. Another development occurred in 1802. Until now, with a possible exception of the standard of the Royal Kentish Bowmen, the motto and the white horse had always appeared separately. 
1802, the Kent Insurance Company was founded. And they depicted the horse and the motto on their fire marks, on the firemen's uniforms, on the buckets their firemen used, on their policies, on their commemorative silverware, and above the entrance to their headquarters. This, as far as I'm aware, is the first time that the horse and the motto appear in combination. And it would subsequently be copied a lot. I'll give you just one example from the middle of the 19th century. This, rather crudely scanned from Archaeologia Cantiana, is a hop token paid by an pinion, a farmer in Sandhurst, to his hop pickers. Again, depicting the horse, it got around the wrong way, with the motto underneath. In 1841, a man called Henry Adams compiled the Kentish Coronal, a compendium of songs and essays written by Kentish authors, including Adams himself, and usually, though not invariably, on a Kentish theme. It has rather a lovely frontispiece, depicting the goddess Athena, a female personification of the county, holding a shield, which has, what else, the white horse, and with her foot resting on a stone on which Invicta is carved. Adams also contributed a series of historical anecdotes to the book, one of which describes Sir Thomas Wyatt's rebellion against Mary I. Wyatt calls upon the men of Kent to revolt with the words, Up with the rampant horse, and let his neigh echo through the land. Up with the old Invicta, let it float proudly upon the breeze. Yeah, sure he did. <laughs> Another contributor to the same volume, Anne Pratt, made a similar reference in, of all unlikely places, an essay on Kentish botany. Commenting on the county's virtues of civility and bravery that had secured its legal privileges, she concluded, It is not only excusable, female Kentish botanist, remember, it is not only excusable, but quite natural that the men of Kent should range themselves beside their banner of the horse rampant, bearing the bold motto Invicta with a feeling of complacency. Adams and Pratt, and possibly Thomas Nichols, seem to have been referring to a real flag with which they expected their readers to be familiar, that depicted the white horse and the motto above or below it. This flag was even drawn into the time-wasting question about the proper definition of men of Kent as opposed to Kentish men. A recurrent theme on this carousel of nonsense was the argument, apparently invented ad hoc, because this is certainly not how Thomas, Thomas Brott described it, that only one half of the county had opposed William, though which half this was seems to have varied depending on the birthplace of the person making the argument, so that only their descendants were the men of Kent and entitled to use the motto Invicta. One disciple of this false religion was George Price, who, batting for West Kent, made the following comment in an 1865 issue of Notes and Queries. Why is the white horse of the Saxons, who submitted to, but were never conquered by, the Normans, with the motto Invicta, still inscribed on the county banner? Was it not conceded by William rather to perpetuate the memory of the brave stand made by the men of West Kent against him, and granted them as a condition of their peaceful submission to his rule? No, 
idiots, of course not, but as atrocious as Spot's grasp of history may have been, his comments do at least add to the accumulating evidence of a flag depicting the horse and the motto. But who is using it? And nowadays you see flags all over the place. We even see them flying from people's houses. But such vexillological incontinence is, like Halloween and Santa Claus, a commercial American import and unlikely to have obtained as early as 1865. So who was flying this flag of Kent? Now, the earliest organisation that is known to have used it was Kent County Cricket Club. That was formed in 1870, so post-dates the evidence we've been considering, but it was formed from the amalgamation of several earlier clubs, the earliest of which had been formed at Town Morling in 1836. The founding president of the amalgamated club was George Harris, 3rd Baron Harris of Seringapatam and Mysore, whose son of the same name and fourth in the title also served as captain for 15 years from 1875. Like so many Kentish institutions, the club used the white horse and the motto, but it is unclear at what point in its history it started putting them on a flag. The curator of the club very kindly went through its records for me, but he couldn't find any reference to it. Several Victorian and Edwardian paintings of cricket matches do seem to show flags in the background, but the details are too obscure to be sure what they are. But confirmation is finally granted by a film of a cricket match between Sussex and Kent in 1913 at the St Lawrence Cricket Ground in Canterbury, which is shown liberally bedecked with flags and pennons. The quality of the film makes it difficult to identify most of them, but two shots do show what is clearly a dark-coloured flag with a white horse and something, a heraldic scroll underneath it. Obviously this is, a, this is a single frame, if you go to the real thing on YouTube and watch it fluttering, you'll get a, get a better idea of it. Flying from a flagpole at the north corner of the ground, just opposite the bat and ball pub. In the same year as this cricket match was played, the facade of Sessions House here in Maidstone was built, with the arms and motto of Kent lovingly depicted from the pediment. The County Council had been using these symbols in various contexts since its foundation in 1889, but in 1930 the Council decided to regularise things by applying for a proper, legally watertight grant of arms. The chairman of the County Arms Subcommittee was the aforementioned fourth Lord Harris, whose influence was felt in the debate over the tincture. Some consideration was given to azure, that's blue, rather than jules, red, as the background colour. But Lord Harris argued that the contrast between a blue field and the white horse may not be sufficiently marked, and especially so if such a depiction is displayed on a flag which is subjected to severe weather conditions. The former captain of Kent County Cricket Club presumably knew this from experience. There was considerable debate over the supporters, and suggestions were dangerously solicited from members of the public. They were lucky they didn't end up with supporter supporter face. Suggestions included a Roman and a Saxon, St Augustine, Thomas Beckett, Hengist, a man of Kent and a Kentish man. I have to say, they look the same to me. <laughs> Two pilgrims, 
a generic Saxon bishop, a generic Saxon archbishop, a generic Saxon king, a generic Saxon, a monk, two rams, each with a collar of hops, a pair of Kentish yeomen, dragons, seahorses, and a rate collector and tax collector <laughs> with final demand, rampant. <laughs> Particularly interesting were several draft designs in which the sinister supporter was a man of Kent, holding a bough of oak. Here's one, and here's the other. Now I have to say this one looks rather more like a maid of Kent to me. Let's go back to that. In the event, however, the committee, regrettably, in my opinion, chose a pair of sea lions alluding, apparently, to the fact that the county is a peninsula. As with the horse, no alternative to Invicta was considered for the motto. But the committee did add one original touch, specifying that the scroll should be in Kentish grey. The agreed design was granted on the 17th of October, 1933. Having been granted arms, the council could now fly a banner of those arms, and this occasioned, or so legend has it, a mildly comical misunderstanding. The first banner of the arms is said to have been a gift from a Labour MP, who, because of the flag's dominant colour, was wrongly accused of making a socialist statement. Unfortunately, I found this story on the internet which comes second only to oral tradition, of which it is practically a form, as the historian's least reliable source. It certainly can't be true as it stands, for at the time the arms were granted, Kent was innocent of Labour MPs, and would remain so until Dartford let the side down by returning Jenny Adamson in 1938. Still, it is an amusing story, and I should feel sorry to let it go, so I would be very interested in finding contemporary corroboration for it. The banner of the arms of the County Council, being simply the escutcheon in flag form, is presumably the reason why the motto seems to have dropped out of the flag as it is commonly used. I've certainly never seen the flag of Kent with the motto written on it. But this does, however, raise the rather niggly legal point that the granting of the undifferenced attributing arm, attributed arms of Hengist to the County Council technically made it unlawful for anyone else to use them. Happily, the council seems never to have been minded to assert an exclusive right to a symbol and motto that were being widely used long before the council existed. The only other symbol of Kent, though not one that ever gained much traction, was Drayton's warrior in the wood motif, but I'm afraid that too has been heraldically claimed. In 1963, arms were granted to the Association of Men of Kent and Kentish Men. As you can see, it is basically the traditional arms of the county, council, with certain differences. But what we're really interested in is the crest, which is heraldically blazoned, a cubit arm, grasping a sword, bend sinister-wise, proper. Hilt and pommel, or The arm encircled by two branches of oak, fructed, proper. Fructed means in flower. A pregnant woman is fructed. In 1958, the Lord Lieutenant unveiled a monument at Swanscombe beside the A2, 
depicting under the arms and motto of the county, the ambush of the Normans. The inscription reads, near this spot in the year 1067, by ancient tradition, the men of Kent and Kentish men, carrying bows on their shoulders and swords in their hands, met the invader, William, Duke of Normandy. They offered peace if he would grant their ancient rights and liberties. Otherwise, war, and that most deadly. That was how Lambard put it. Their request was granted, and from that day the motto of Kent has been Invicta, meaning unconquered. When the A2 was widened, this monument had to be relocated into the village. So the statement near this spot ceased to be true. But it never was, was it? Kent is not the unconquered county. We just like to think we are. The story of the ambush of William at Swanscombe is a lie, but like all tenacious lies, it does contain an atom of truth. A delegation of Kentish representatives really did surrender to William separately from the rest of England. He really did make an empty promise to respect existing laws and customs, and Kent really did retain a great deal of pre-conquest law long after the same had been superseded in the rest of England. It would be easy to dismiss the patriotic folktale that Thomas Sprott recorded as too much embellished to deserve consideration as a historical source. But that would be to ignore the fact that, though it might not tell us what really happened, it does tell us what people believed had happened, and what people believed is also part of history. What people believe, the lies, legends and myths, about the past of their county or country are crucial for creating a feeling of shared identity and loyalty in which to take pride, for which to fight, and for which to die. We are extremely fortunate in this county and in this country that it has been a very long time since we have last seriously had to contemplate fighting and dying for our legends. But from time to time, it has been necessary to, to remember them and to believe them again. When Lambert published the Swanskin legend, Elizabethan England was under constant threat from Popish conspiracy and Spanish attack. When the Royal Kentish Bowmen wrote Invicta on their flag, or when a tradesman in Deptford illustrated his token with a scene from Swanscombe, the threat of French invasion was terrifyingly real. In those generations, and perhaps in generations yet to come. That motto, every time it is read or spoken, will serve as a reminder that should the men of Kent be called upon again, we must all do whatever we can to ensure that our county and our country may remain unconquered.